Hello everyone and welcome. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. The podcast of the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. The Hannah Arendt Center provides an intellectual space for passionate, uncensored, nonpartisan thinking in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. My name is Jana Mader, and I'm the Director of Academic Programs at the Hannah Arendt Center. It is my pleasure to introduce Roger Berkowitz, Founder and Academic Director of the Hannah Arendt Center. Roger Berkowitz is a Professor of Politics, Philosophy and Human Rights at Bard College. He's the winner of the 2019 Hannah Arendt Prize for Political Thought given by the Heinrich Böll Foundation. Stay on for more info at the end of today's episode. Our current book is The Origins of Totalitarianism, published in 1951. Make sure to subscribe to not miss an episode. Hi, Roger. Hey, Yana, how are you? Good, how are you? Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Year to you. That's a good <laughs> Thank one. Thank you. I worry, though, I worry. Did you have a nice New Year's Eve? I think Arid enjoyed hosting parties at her apartment in New York City. Yeah, you know, for the last 30 years, we've hosted a New Year's Eve party, my family. And this year we sat home, ordered pizza and watched a movie. So it was a little different. That sounds pretty good, too. Yeah. We're back this week with the next chapter, chapter 10, titled A Classless Society. It is the first chapter of part three on totalitarianism. In this chapter reading, you will be talking about Arendt's definition of the classes and the masses, two democratic delusions that led to totalitarianism, the role of loneliness, and the alliance between the mob and the elite. I wanted to quickly ask you, do you think that there is a move towards totalitarianism today? And could you quickly, since we're starting with this new book, the new part, part three, could you explain what is totalitarianism in general to Hannah Arendt? Oh, yeah. Well, those are two small questions to ask. <laughs> um, so, yeah, but I, first of all, I think it's really important to note we are, you know, at this point in the podcast moving towards a, a new book. So the, the origins of totalitarianism is, is, is in three parts. And this is part three on totalitarianism. And, you know, on the one hand, it's the part everyone wants to know about. What is totalitarianism? Uh, on the other hand, the other two parts are deeply important in chart of explaining the origins of it and where it comes from. But, you know, what totalitarianism is, is uh, a very complicated question. And it's what the next 300 pages are about. But in, in brief, it's about a, a brand new system of government. And that's important for our end, right? This is something that's never happened before. She thinks tyranny has happened before. Dictatorship has happened before. Fascism has happened before. Certainly aristocracy, democracy, et cetera. But we've never had totalitarianism government before. And, and so she's really, in the next three chapters, trying to describe, articulate, and understand what it is that this new form of government is and why it's so incredibly um, destructive and dangerous. She says it's the complete evisceration of human freedom. Totalitarianism rules, she, she wants to argue, aims for what she calls the total domination of the population of the earth and the elimination of every competing non-totalitarian reality. So that if there's one human being in the world who could think and change his mind or her mind and pierce the totalitarian control of reality, that's a weakness for the totalitarian regime. They have to, in a sense, get into your mind and get everyone thinking the same way. It's the total loss of both external and internal freedom. Obviously, that's an enormous enterprise and it's rare and it may never have happened. You know, she looks at Nazi Germany and Bolshevist Russia as the two examples of totalitarian governments that are out there in the 20th century. And what she says is neither succeeded, right? Both of them failed. You know, the Nazism failed after about, what, 
15 years and Bolshevism failed after took a little longer, but it failed because it couldn't completely eviscerate freedom. And because it couldn't completely eviscerate freedom, there were always holes in the argument, in the in the fictional coherent realities that they created. And thus people could keep resistance alive. She calls the concentration camps, we'll talk about this in, in chapter 12, the greatest experiments ever in attempting to create a complete totalitarian system where there's no space for either inner or external freedom. And that's the horror of the camps for her is that they are as close as we've ever come to a totalitarian institution or system. So yeah, I, the, the, these chapters are, are harrowing at times. Um, there's going to be a lot in them that are going to really make you uncomfortable. They're also going to make you uncomfortable because there's a lot that seems quite prescient about the present. She certainly would not think that we have a totalitarian system in certainly in most countries today, not even in Russia or maybe close to it in China, but certainly not fully and certainly not in the United States or Europe or anything like that. And I don't think she would think we're close to it. That doesn't mean that there aren't totalitarian elements or elements of totalitarianism that are active and dangerous and 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 growing in all of these places. And and one of the really fascinating things about reading this book and reading these three chapters on totalitarianism is that it really does make us think deeply about where the danger of totalitarianism uh, lies today in in the modern world, right? You know, she'll talk about the destruction of classes and the transformation of classes into masses, right? Uh, in this chapter on the classless society. And, and that's important because the classes um, gave people, for most people, a structure in which they could pursue their political interests. So if you were the working class, most people in the working class are not political, but they elected labor leaders or they elected um, labor leaders in politics who would pursue their interests for them. And they largely stayed out of politics. There were the bourgeoisie and they elected, you know, maybe liberal party people, people in the liberal party in the sense of liberal economics and who supported business. There were aristocrats who maybe would elect conservative people. And the point is these classes existed and people would vote for their representatives and they largely let the representatives govern. But as these classes break down, and there are a host of reasons why she thinks they break down, some part of modern uh, society and some intentional by leaders who want to break them apart, people become atomized. They become isolated. They become not part of a class. And they feel resentful, bitter, hurt, left behind, and they become part of what she starts to call the mass. And the masses are the detritus of all these classes who feel that their interests are not being represented, that they're uh, not being taken seriously. And these masses who are normally people who don't vote, who aren't involved in politics, are suddenly what you might call raw material ready for the organizing. And that's what she is pointing out in this chapter on the classless society. And so she's talking about how these people get organized. These lonely atomized people get organized into totalitarian movements. And that's what we're beginning to understand. And that's something that I think is happening in this country on, on many levels. People are being organized in the MAGA movement. They're being organized in a kind of anti-capitalist movement. They're being organized in maybe an environmental movement. And, and these movements become ideological movements in which it's not a policy per se that you're after, but a mood and a, and a feeling of, of, of identity and power. And, and they work when you feel an incredible loyalty to uh, the movement and the leader, and you're willing to do anything and believe anything they say, even if it doesn't fit with, your, with, with reality. That's the essence and the beginning of the totalitarian movement through the classless society that we'll be talking about in this chapter. Thank you. Here's chapter 10. All right, welcome and happy new year, everybody. My name is Roger Berkowitz. I'm the founder and academic director here at the Hannah Arendt Center at Bard College. 
thrilled to be with you today. We are beginning the last book of this book. So this book is organized in a very Germanic way. It actually has three books. The first one on anti-Semitism, the second one on imperialism, and the third one on totalitarianism. In many ways, this third book on totalitarianism is the most and the least important part of the book. It's the, it's the least important part of the book in the sense that if you're interested in the origins of totalitarianism, that's already been said for the most part. There will be parts of this book in which we do learn about the origins of totalitarianism and, in fact, some very important things. But this book is more an account of, of what totalitarianism is and how it works. That'll be especially true in chapter 12 on the totalitarianism in power. Chapter 11, the totalitarian movement, is, is an important transition. And in some ways, it is part of this exploration of the origins of totalitarianism. And it's an important distinction and one that I want you to keep thinking about. And I think it's often often lost both in popular discourse, but also in, in scholarly and academic discourse, both about totalitarianism and about Arendt's work. This distinction she makes between a movement, which is before totalitarianism takes power, and then totalitarianism in power. And, and they're not the same thing. And then there's this chapter 10, which we'll talk about today, called A Classless Society, which is a very important chapter and contains in it, in, its, in two parts. The first one is on the masses, and the second one is on the temporary alliance between the mob and the elite. I'll tell you that that little section, the temporary alliance between the mob and the elite, is one of my favorite sections in all of RN's writings. So we'll get to that in a little bit, and I hope you'll you'll find it interesting as well. I think it's worth just beginning with the epigraph to the whole section on totalitarianism by David Rousset. Normal men do not know that everything is possible. In many ways, this is, if you understand that short epigraph, you're going to understand a lot of what Arendt wants to say about totalitarianism, that part of what totalitarianism is, is overcoming normalcy, is, is turning us into people who can do anything, who know that everything is possible. And it takes away, you know, the banisters, the foundations and all limits and that's the totalizing aspect of, of totalitarianism. Obviously, as we read this chapter, many of you are going to be making connections to things going on around the world, around you, in this country, in other countries. I think that there's a lot that this book, that this part of the book on totalitarianism is incredibly provocative in helping us to think through a number of phenomena going on in the world today from all different uh, sides of the political agenda. And we have to be careful not to just start labeling everything totalitarian. She certainly does not want to do that. And we'll talk a lot about that over the next few weeks as we read these chapters. You know, she's going to make a distinction between fascism and totalitarianism. She's going to make a distinction between dictatorship and totalitarianism. Uh, she's going to make a lot of distinctions, distinctions between masses and mobs, one we're about to get into, between totalitarian movements and totalitarianism and power. And not all these things are as dangerous as each other, right? I mean, fascism is not going to be seen to be nearly as dangerous as totalitarianism. That doesn't mean fascism is good, but it means for her, it's not nearly as devastating. And, and we need to take things like that seriously and remember that this is an intellectual project. That doesn't mean we can't then draw our own conclusions and our own political actions from it, but but we're going to try and uh, understand it in that way. So let me begin. Oh, one last thing to say is we are currently reading the second edition of this book, which was, I think, published in English in 1958, if I have that correctly. Someone can check in and let us know in the chat. But the original edition was published in 1950, and then the German edition which was a rewriting of the original English edition that RN wrote, was published in 1955. I bring this up because in the second edition, RN made a number of changes. The biggest change being the addition of the last chapter, the epilogue, 
chapter 13, and the cutting out of a small conclusion that had been in edition one. But also she she used that opportunity to edit and make some additions. And while there are small additions uh, in the anti-Semitism and imperialism chapter, there are huge additions throughout this book on totalitarianism. She's added a lot, including the first paragraph here on, on page 305 and the footnotes associated with it. These are all new. So this is part of her rethinking of totalitarianism and the attempt to get at the essence of it that is going to be going on here. And just something you should know about, this is a book, this is a part of the book that she really did rework throughout the 1950s. And so I think it does incorporate some of her later insights and thinking um, as she's writing The Human Condition and some of her other essays at that time. Okay, The Classless Society. Why is this the first chapter of, of the book on totalitarianism? It itself is split into two parts. The part one is on the masses, and part two is on the temporary alliance between the mob and the elite. So why is the classless society so important? Classes of people for Arendt are generally interest-based, right? If you are part of the working class, uh, you have interests. If you're part of the bourgeoisie, you have interests. If you're part of the aristocracy, you have interests. And those interests are often associated with parties, right? The Labor Party, uh, the Conservative Party. And, and these parties represent a kind of a filtering of the, of the interests of the many into a, a general common politically palatable class interest. One thing that's important to remember is that for most classes and the parties that come out of them, it's a very few group of people who are politicized, right? There's the, it's the few educated members of the working class who become union leaders. And then those out of those union leaders, some of them become parliamentarians or, or Congress people. And then they become leaders or presidents of the, of the working class or the labor party. The point I'm trying to make is that for, for Arendt, classes are a way of dividing the population up according to interests in such a way that for the most part, right, for the most part, most of the people in a particular class are not politicized. You know, most union members go to work. They don't, they don't get involved too much in politics, but there are union leaders who do. And, and so for Arendt, classes are associated with political parties and are associated with people who are not involved in politics. We let that be led by leaders. Masses are, are very different, right? The vast majority of people in a democracy are not people who vote and are not people who have strong political opinions. And for the most part, we're what she calls politically neutral or politically ambivalent. Uh, so on page 312, I'm just going to jump ahead a little bit because I think it's important to understand the essence of what she's trying to say here. She says, the success of totalitarian movements among the masses meant the end of two illusions of democratically ruled countries in general. These are two illusions that most democracies had about themselves. The first illusion was that the people in the majority, the people in its majority, had taken an active part in government and that each individual was in sympathy with one's own or somebody else's party. So the illusion right? The delusion, depending on how you want to call it, of most democracies is that most of us are political and most of us care if the Democrats or the Republicans win or if the, you know, CDU or the SPD or the Greens or the FDP or whatever it is win, right? And she says, that's just not the case. Most people in a democracy are passive. Most people are apathetic. Most people didn't vote. And this has been true, you know, in the United States, or at least 50 or 60 percent. In most elections, most people don't vote in the United States. And certainly in the presidential election, it's rare if we get around 50 percent or it's about normal there. And so this was one delusion. The second, she says, the second democratic illusion exploded by the totalitarian movements was that these politically indifferent masses did not matter. We've always assumed that the people who don't vote 
the people who are passive or apathetic, the people who, you know, don't get involved didn't matter. They were sort of like the, whatever you want to call them, lots of bad words. You probably have them, but people who just had other concerns. And what she says is all democracies have these people. In fact, it's often about, it may even be a majority of the people and they only matter and they come to matter when the class system breaks down and when people stop being represented by parties that represent their class and they then become a mass and this mass of people, which can often be at all and many times is a majority, but is usually a silent majority can be activated. And this is a big part of what she thinks is happening in the rise of totalitarianism, both in Germany and in the Soviet Union. Something I should I should have said, she's going to ping pong back and forth between Nazi Germany and Bolshevist Russia throughout this or Soviet Union throughout this chapter. And she's going to use them both as examples of of the rise of totalitarianism. Okay, I want to just have that in your head. It's these masses, these undifferentiated masses are for her a group of people who generally are silent, who don't have strong political opinions, and that's important, are not associated with strong class interests or political interests. And they can be mobilized. They can be organized. What allows them to be organized, right? What is going to push them to be organized? What is going to cause the masses to, as she says on page 311, acquire an appetite for political organization? What is going to make these neutral and unaffiliated people suddenly politically active? Her answer to that, I mean, again, there's not one answer, but one major answer is that these people are lonely. They are atomized. They are, they feel adrift and lost. And they're part of what she calls the European mass man that began to emerge in the late 19th and early 20th century. They feel all the same. This is on page 315. There's a kind of self-centered bitterness that they have. They feel that they've been left behind. They feel that they've been, they, they're resentful at a political world that has not uh, addressed their concerns or interests. And they feel expendable, as she says at the bottom of 315. And as they, as this mass of people feels this way, they don't start advocating politically for their interests. They don't say we want you know, a job or, or a certain wage or things like that. But they, then she says, they're not interested in everyday problems. And she says, this is what Himmler knew about these masses of people. This is on page 316. They get interested in ideological questions. Why? Because the ideological questions, the ideologies, what is the ideology? It's the truth of an idea. It's the logic of an idea. And it begins to give them a sense of meaning or purpose. And so she says that loneliness, the extreme individuation of modern society, and this feeling of being expendable, of being the same as everyone else, of being overlooked by everyone, leads to uh, these masses of people being primed and having an appetite for political organization not to achieve particular political ends, but to act in such a way uh, that they would engage in world historical actions, that they will begin to act in such a way that they think that what they're doing is part of a movement. And thus, even their lives, which seem expendable and unimportant and purposeless, uh, suddenly become meaningful insofar as they are are part of a movement. And so on, on 317, she'll write at the top of the page, the truth is that the masses grew out of a, the fragments of a highly atomized society whose competitive structure and concomitant loneliness of the individual 
had been held in check only through membership in a class. The masses grew out of a lonely, atomized society that had been held in check because the people in that society saw themselves as part of a class, saw themselves as having political interests, saw themselves as represented by elites in that class, and thus and thus basically remained passive and remained uninvolved in politics and let the system work. But as they, as the classes broke down, as the class society disintegrated, these people were left without a party or an organization that gave them a sense of meaning in any way or representation. And she says, she continues, the chief characteristic of the mass man is not brutality and backwardness, but is isolation and the lack of normal social relationships. The mass man is not someone who's dumb. He's not someone who's backward. He's not brutal. He's isolated. He's lonely. She or he have no normal social relationships. And coming from the class-ridden society of the nation state, whose cracks had been cemented with nationalist sent- nationalistic sentiment, it is only natural that these masses in the first helplessness of their new experience have tended toward an especially violent nationalism to which mass leaders have yielded against their own instincts and purposes for purely demagogic reasons. She thinks that in in Germany, the breakdown of class society happened somewhat naturally, whereas in Bolshevik Russia, it happened more artificially through Stalin destroying all class-based and all collective interest organizations, including the civil service, the bureaucracy, leaders, etc., All of which is to say that it is this sort of unaffiliated group of masses, people who are no longer represented by classes that she sees as the sort of raw material for totalitarianism. She offers on page 323 a definition, and it's an important definition. It's the definition of totalitarian movements, again, not of totalitarianism in power, but of totalitarian movements. And she says, totalitarian movements are mass organizations of atomized, isolated individuals. And I think we have to understand all the parts of that definition. Totalitarian movements. What are a movement? Well, she says back on, I think on page 306, and it's worth uh, our, our, our paying attention to. She says that at the core of totalitarianism, is this idea of a perpetual motion mania. She says there's a certain impermanence to totalitarianism, and it can be traced to the perpetual motion mania of totalitarian movements, which can remain in power only so long as they keep moving and set everything around them in motion. Therefore, in a certain sense, this very impermanence is a rather flattering testimonial to the dead leaders, namely Hitler and Stalin, who she says can be forgotten as soon as they die. But it's a testimonial to them insofar as they succeeded in contaminating their subjects with the specifically totalitarian virus. And this totalitarian virus is the extraordinary adaptability, the absence of continuity, perpetual motion mania. The point is that if you're a part of a totalitarian movement, it doesn't matter what you're aiming at. You could aim at ending abortion, you could aim at ending you know, immigration, you could end at you know, saving the environment, uh, you can end at you know, whatever your goal is, bringing down capitalism. The point is the goals change. It's less important the goal and, and more important uh, that you're in constant motion and constant motion towards that goal. The second part of the definition on 323 is that they are mass organizations. Okay, by mass, I mean what I said before, the unaffiliated, neutral, apolitical, apathetic, lonely people. And then the second part of that, organizations that are now organized. How do you organize these masses, these lonely people? Organizations of atomized, isolated individuals. You organize them by providing an ideological framework by giving them 
a sense of purpose to achieve some task, whether it's, you know, remaking America or ending racism or saving the environment, whatever it is. And you make that their ultimate task. And what matters most is that you get rid of any concrete program, right? She says this on page 324. You have to get rid of any party program or any specified concrete content. And she says, I mean, this is an incredible statement. Uh, you know, again, she often does have a tendency to say 15 things like this in a, in a, in a single chapter, but Hitler's greatest achievement in the organization of the Nazi movement, right? She says, was, was that he unburdened the movement of the party's earlier program, right? He took away the program, not by changing or abolishing it, but simply by refusing to talk about it. He doesn't talk about policy. He talks about ideology. And he talks about honor and loyalty. And so the key to mobilizing and organizing lonely and atomized and isolated individuals is to say, you are going to be part of something bigger than yourselves, something meaningful, as long as you're loyal to us. And if you stay loyal, we will be part of something great. You know, on, on page 307 to 308, this is another part that I've, I thought, you know, again, this is a very rich chapter, but on, on, on 307 to 308, she says that the attraction of the mob, and the mob is different from the masses, right? The masses, I said, are these unaffiliated individuals who don't have interests, but are lonely and need to be part of a, a, an ideology. But the attraction of the Nazis and the Bolsheviks, in her mind, were that they were convinced that evil doing has a morbid force of attraction. This is uh, at the top of page 307. She said, Bolshevik assurances inside and outside Russia that they do not recognize ordinary moral standards have become a mainstay of communist propaganda and that they represent the general contempt for moral standards. The point is that what made these movements so popular was our was their contempt for morality their contempt for standard for moral standards their sense that they didn't act out of self-interest and this is important for her the fanaticism of totalitarianism as she'll write later down on the page uh, comes from not individualism or not the pursuit of interests not it's not based in experience it is selfless and there's something honorable about that, you know, at least in some people's sense, that the, the, the totalitarian movement, these masses of individuals are not out for their own interests. They're out to be part of a movement that's going to make a larger point. She says on, on 308, right at the top of the page, right after footnote nine, she says, but within the organizational framework of the movement, so long as it holds together, the fanaticized members can be reached by neither experience nor argument. Identification with the movement and total conformism seems to have destroyed the very capacity for experience, even if it be as extreme as torture or the fear of death. Now, I bet many of you are thinking about, you know, a particular political party in the United States, and I think you're not wrong to be thinking about that. But I just was on a plane last week and I watched a, a new movie about the GameStop phenomena that happened, uh, the, the, the stock that people were, the experts were shorting on Wall Street and that other people rode up. And there was a guy named Roaring Kitty who kept saying, I'm in, and every day published how much he was making and things like that. And you, you, you saw in this, in this movie a complete loyalty to Roaring Kitty, right? As long as he stayed in, I would stay in. We're going to we're not here to make money. We're here to bring down Wall Street and bring down the capitalist system. And if he's in, I'm in. It's that kind of loyalty. And that's the kind of organizational framework and organizational fanaticism that Arendt is interested in in movements. This brings us to part two of the chapter. Once we understand that the power of masses and mass movements 
mass organized movements of lonely, atomized, and isolated individuals. This part two of the movement is on uh, what I said earlier. It's called the temporary alliance between the mob and the elite. I've always loved this section, not only because it, I think, hits home to many of us who are uh, in the academic world, but I think it's also deeply important. It's about why so many elites become fellow travelers with the Nazi movement, with the Bolshevik movement, with ideological movements in general. Why is it that highly educated, highly cultured, often good people who are part of the elite throw their, you know, their, their glove into the ring and, and become part of a totalitarian movement? She's interested in the smugness of spurious respectability that gives way to anarchic despair on 327. She's interested in the way that these intellectuals become fascinated with those people who want to tear apart institutions and societies. And she says it makes sense, right? Because the truth is our institutions are corrupt and our societies are corrupt. The bourgeois morality of our societies, and I think it's true today as it was in the 1920s and 30s, right? Is one where you profess to be acting, you know, upright with upright fortitude and morality. And what you're really doing is trying to stab people in the back and make as much money as you can. And so what she says is the elite were the people who really understood how justified disgust can be in a society wholly permeated with the ideological outlook and moral standards of the bourgeoisie. You know, if you're in the academic world today, you hear a lot of talk about neoliberalism. That's another way of saying this. People are disgusted with what they call neoliberalism, which is a somewhat jargony and fancy word to say something like the moral standards of the bourgeoisie. The idea that our governments are designed to support money and advantage and privilege for, for certain people. And they claim to be doing it out of, you know, fidelity to the rule of law or good standards or an international legal order or whatever it is. But what they're really doing is, is, is making money for themselves and their friends. And so there's this deep sense of the system is broken. The system is corrupt and the elites have a kind of yearning for violence a selfless anonymity. They want to see the system fall apart. And so she cites a lot from this book by Hannah Hofgesprink, which is called The Unknown Germany, of all these authors in the 1920s and 30s in Germany who were talking about the need to rebirth society through war and through letting it fall apart so that we could rebirth it. You know, there, there's sort of an idea that uh, after the Great Depression, uh, in the United States, people learned again, frugality, hard work, et cetera. There was some sense that you needed this economically, but you also needed this through war to sort of reassert kind of classic values. The intellectuals, uh, she says, were deeply hurt by the hypocrisy of society, by the routine misery of people in society, and by the fake culture of society. And they came to say at the bottom of 331, that the only way that you could be a true person was to either be a hero or a criminal because only then could you exist and feel like you were really doing something. And so the intellectuals came to justify terrorism on 332, right? She says they came to find terrorism had become a kind of philosophy through which to express frustration, resentment, and blind hatred. And you begin to justify terrorism. I mean, I think you see this happening right now amongst many in the elite. And so she says, there's a difference between the mob and the elite. The mob still thought that they wanted to become great. They wanted to access greatness. They wanted fame. The elite simply wanted to be anonymous. They didn't believe in genius, but they both, the mob and the elite came to celebrate 
all attacks on respectable society. The mob celebrated it because they thought they could then become in power. They could come to power and they could then, whereas they had been excluded from power, they could now become the powerful at the expense of the bourgeoisie or the or the uh, the aristocracy or the people in power. And the elite wanted to tear apart respectable society and attack respectable society simply because they hated it. And they thought it would be fun and even maybe ennobling to see it break down. And so on 333, she writes, the temporary alliance between the elite and the mob rested largely on this genuine delight with which the former watched the latter right? The elite watched the mob destroy respectability. I think that's one of the most profound sentences in the book. I think if you look at the way a lot of elites react to the world today, I think it's dead on. On 334 to 335, she she talks about satire. She says the attraction which on the top of 334, the attraction which the totalitarian movements exert on the elite so long as and wherever they have not seized power. And that's an important part. Once the totalitarian movement seize power, the elites turn away from totalitarianism. But then it's too late. Right. That's her. That's going to be her point. She says it's been perplexing because of the patently vulgar and arbitrary positive doctrines of totalitarianism. But what she says makes it palatable is that it's this very vulgarity and absurdity of totalitarian movements. The claims that we have to throw everything out, throw out the Supreme Court, right? You know, you have a lot of people, you know, in the in the elites now saying, oh, the Supreme Court is is helplessly political. Let's get rid of it or let's pack it, right? And it sounds courageous. It sounds, she says, like you're speaking truths. It sounds like you're 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 being a hero in admitting certain things. So she'll say what the spokesmen of humanism and liberalism usually overlook, what these elites usually overlook, in their bitter disappointment and their unfamiliarity with the mere more general experience of the time, is that an atmosphere in which all traditional values and propositions had evaporated, in a sense, made it easier to accept patently absurd propositions than the old truths, which had become pious banalities. See, it's an old truth that the Supreme Court is above politics. It's a, And it now sounds like a pious banality. And so it's easy to actually just say, throw the Supreme Court out, pack the court. She continues, vulgarity with its cynical dismissal of respected standards and accepted theories carried with it a frank admission of the worst and a disregard for all pretenses which were easily mistaken for courage and a new style of life. So the idea was that the elites became to think that simply admitting that the banality, the old truths were pious banalities was an act of courage. And they came to say that it's good to show that everything is a matter of hypocrisy. And she says, as a result, the elite became tempted to flaunt extremism. It became intellectually au courant to be extremist, to say, tear it all down, break it apart. And the result is that they supported the mob in breaking it apart. And the mob took the support to break it apart. And then once they did, both the mob and the elite were pushed aside by the masses, by the totalitarian movement. She offers this uh, example of Brecht's Three Penny Opera, the Die Groschen Oper, which was performed in pre-Hitler Germany. And this example has always been one of my favorite in her book. So I'll just read it. It's on 335. She writes, the play presented gangsters as respectable businessmen and respectable businessmen as gangsters. So, you know, we all know this. Trump is a businessman and a gangster, right? And he's not the only one. We had the Sopranos recently where the Sopranos who were gangsters were presented as respectable. There's this desire to sort of show the corruption of society by showing that there's really no difference between the mob and the businessman. She writes, the irony was somewhat lost when respectable businessmen in the audience considered this a deep insight into the ways of the world 
and when the mob welcomed it as an artistic sanction of gangsterism. The point is that when you start doing this, you show gangsters acting respectable and businessmen acting like gangsters, instead of being appalled by it, the businessman, she says, thought, oh, thank God, I no longer have to say that I'm, you know, an upright moral person. I can admit that I'm just like a gangster. And so she says the bourgeoisie applauded because it had been fooled by its own hypocrisy for so long that it had grown tired of the tension and found deep wisdom in the expression of the banality by which they lived. It could now say it's true. We're just gangsters. And then she adds the elite applauded because the unveiling of hypocrisy was such superior and wonderful fun. It allowed everyone to discard the uncomfortable mask of hypocrisy and to accept openly the standards of the mob. And this is one of Arendt's insights that she talks about in many of her books, especially in On Revolution, but how hypocrisy is actually important. Hypocrisy, which is the vi- the complement vice plays to virtue. We're all hypocrites. We're all, none of us are, you know, none of us have a pure heart. It's not human to have a pure heart, but hypocrisy makes us act as if we at least care that we are pure and moral. And, and, and part of what this, this chapter is about is the rise of the, this alliance between the bourgeoisie and the, and the, and the mob. I mean, the intel, the elite and the mob was to, in a sense, allow both to throw off hypocrisy and just embrace power and embrace violence and embrace destruction. And they did so at a time when the masses were already being organized and, and mobilized. And as she's going to say, in the end, the mob and the elite um, both failed and were overcome by the totalitarian movement. And that's what we'll discuss in chapter 11. So it's a lot to discuss in this chapter. I feel like I didn't even uh, scratch a lot of the surface of, of things I wanted to talk about. And I spoke a long time, so I apologize. But there's a lot to talk about. Look forward to the conversation. Hi, Bob. Hi. Um, I'm wondering how you uh, reconcile your uh, commitment to talking across uh, the aisle, actually uh, talking across the Great Divide, with what Aaron says about uh, the members of of the totalitarian movement uh, who are beyond data, uh, beyond reason, um, and they're just interested in, in forging ahead. Yeah, it's a good question. And it's an important question. So, I mean, who are these people who are, you know, part of a totalitarian movement? They are the masses. They're people who are, they're the detritus of all different classes. That means from the aristocracy, from the professional classes, from the working class, from the unemployed, people who don't, who, who drop out of and don't feel part of, of those classes. And they are generally, in most cases in a democracy, silent and apathetic, but they can become mobilized. You're asking uh, a good question, which is if they do become mobilized and if they do become ideological, and thus they're impervious to experience and to fact and to reason, um, why should we talk to them? I would say this. One is they're the majority. They're the majority of people. You know, we have to take that. You know, that's one of the things Arendt is pushing you to say. This is These, are not, this, these were not minority movements. These were majority movements. So you got to take them seriously. But two, what it means is you're not going to convince these people with facts you're not going to convince them with 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 arguments in which you say i know what you're i know you're wrong but i think they are reachable uh this is not our end talking this is me and um and so i'll just put it out there but i think they are reachable if you listen to them you have to understand our overarching point that what makes the masses the masses ultimately 
is a sense of loneliness, isolation, resentment, and anger, and bitterness. And that means if you just keep telling them you're wrong, you're wrong, you're stupid, you're wrong, you're not going to get very far. So reaching out across the aisle and trying to you know, convince them that they shouldn't vote for this person or that they shouldn't do this policy, you're right, it's not going to work. And, and I don't think that's very helpful. But reaching out to them and getting to know them and understanding what's driving their resentment and their loneliness and anger and, 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 and figuring out policies, God forbid, that actually create a sense of community. How do we reach, you know, there's a famous book, Bowling Alone by, by Rob Putnam. How do you, you know, how do you, uh, how do you create policies that actually restore senses of community and belonging and trust in people? That's a, that's a longer term, maybe generational project. Reaching out to them and showing them that you actually listen to them and care, I think it goes a long way because what it does is when that happens, it, it does, I think it can break down the kind of ideological barriers of me against them. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I, I think you're right, Bob, in the sense that just trying to argue with people on policy in this kind of a world is very difficult, right? Just like the GameStop thing I was talking about. I don't know how many of you remember that, but, you know, if you were to try to say to these people, well, you know, in the movie, it was very funny. Like people like, just sell, make money. You know, you've made $11 million, take it. And they're like, no, no, I want to bring down Wall Street, right? There was no amount of experience or anything that was going to break through. They were just going to, that was their goal. But you know, reaching out and having them get to know people different from them. Same with the Trump voter, same with, you know, the the radical environmentalists or whatever it is. Uh, I think that there is um, a place for that. And I think there's a place for a politics in which people get together, randomly selected in citizen assemblies and have to actually listen and talk to people very different from them and, and come to decisions and make decisions. And so I, 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 you know, I think there is a place for that, but, but, but just sitting there and yelling and arguing about policy, I happen to think you're right. I don't think it's going to be very effective. John. My comment is really dovetailing on previous two commentators or questions, because it seems so, it seems so prescient by Arendt to have described what we have currently. And so has she written about the solution that she might envision to this um, set of circumstances, or are we destined for a constitutional crisis or that could turn violent in this country? Well, I don't think we're destined for anything. I mean, one of the beauties of human being and Arendt brought this out as well as anyone is that we are free and we can change our course. Uh, it's not always so easy, but we can. And even totalitarianism, I mean, she'll write when we get to the end of the book, you'll see she thinks that the very core of totalitarianism she's going to come to argue at the end of the book is the total evisceration of freedom. And what she's going to argue is it can't happen. Now, could it happen? I don't know, maybe. But she doesn't think it did happen. And she thinks that the the the, the holes of oblivion, even the concentration camps, which were supposed to be the, 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 the experimental laboratories for how to fully obliterate freedom, failed. And um, people came out of them and told the stories and made their lives meaningful and even made some of the people's lives who'd been killed meaningful by telling the stories uh, in a way that she thinks will largely prevent or at least make it much harder for that kind of totalitarianism to repeat itself. That doesn't mean that the basic problems and root causes or origins of totalitarianism, which are still there, won't lead to other, maybe even more virulent or worse forms of 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 totalitarianism. But um, 
you know, she, she, she has that confident. I mean, as for solutions, again, we'll, we'll get to this later in the book. She doesn't think simply teaching people about it uh, per se will, will prevent it. But she does think that teaching people the horror of it and making people fully viscerally feel the horror of it could lead people to understand that the primary and most important political motivation in modern politics is not any particular policy, but is the rejection of those aspects of totalitarian rule that could lead to um, the evisceration of freedom. I said it before, and I just want to bring it up. I mean, you know, is totalitarianism, you know, you, 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 a couple of you have said this is so prescient, it's so important, uh, and I think it is. Um, but, you know, you have to, we have to ask ourselves honestly, you know, to what extent are we actually, you know, dealing with crises of the kind she's describing in this book? And we haven't gotten to chapters 11 and 12 where she really goes fully into full-on totalitarianism as a movement and then in power. But, you know, she talks about how for Bolshevist Russia, they, you know, Stalin wants to get rid of everything, chess clubs, uh, any kind of group where people can, 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 you know, uh, rent reading groups. I mean, we're not at a point in this country and we're not even close to a point in this country, right? Um, where we're reaching the kind of atomization and loneliness that was achieved in the totalitarian movements in Germany or, or, or Russia. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind, right? People are still very much involved in civic and civil uh, organizations. They're involved in universities. There's a lot of freedom of thought, maybe not as much as we'd like, some of that from the left, some of that from the right. You know, we still have immigration. We're not deporting citizens. We're, we're actually not even deporting a lot of non-citizens right now, uh, which, you know, is, is, is certainly controversial if you watch the Republican debates the other day. But, you know, we're not at the point where, you know, we're destroying civic institutions and civic society. And I think that's an important, we should just be aware of that. Doesn't mean it can't happen. It doesn't mean that if the, you know, if, if, if they, if someone decides to undo the civil service and undo the federal bureaucracy as a way of removing people who are, who have a kind of class-based interest in nonpartisan policy. That doesn't mean that couldn't happen. And, and that only happened, you'd have to think about what that means, but, but that is a class-based interest. And, and, and one can argue that the reason to remove it is because you don't like their class-based interest and the results, or you could say because you want to create the grounds for totalitarianism. And you could say maybe it's both. All I'm saying is it's important to see the parallels because RN does want to say that the fundamental original problems, the loneliness, the atomization are there and are not going away. And we have to address them and we have to be aware of the dangers that that poses. But we shouldn't just jump and say, oh, well, you know, we're about to enter the world of totalitarianism. I'm not saying it's not going to happen. It certainly could. We just have to be, you, you don't want to become immune to reality on the other side, right? You want to still stick to reality because the, one of the cores, like one of the core features of totalitarianism is as a lonely person embracing the movement, you lose sight of reality. And it's important at all moments to to hold on to reality and not make it conform to any particular ideology, even an Arendtian, you know, story, right? And I think that's an important point. I just want to make sure we're we're on board with. Joanne. Thank you. Um, I have I wonder who all she means by the term elite. It seems to me that she uses that a lot in in what I've read so far of this part. And I, un I, I understand, that she says at one point, German steel barons. Okay, German steel barons are very different than intellectuals, artists, writers, scientists. And what makes me 
think about this issue is I just finished the big book on Oppenheimer, American Prometheus. And after the bomb, uh, the, the two bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the scientists themselves were so appalled. And many of them, not all of them, but virtually all of them wanted to stop stop the whole thing. But there were a few that wanted to go on into creation of a super bomb. Anyway, the military gets involved and the military is all for a super bomb. So I, I think that What's missing in what I'm reading about elites here is a connection to to power. Um, the the intellectuals, including Oppenheimer, of course, is eventually made a victim of McCarthyism. Um, I just wonder what you would say about who all she includes in that. Do you think it's a little bit too broad a term the way she uses it? Yeah, that's fine. That's good. I mean, the the, the major elite she's talking about are, 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 are writers, cultural, you know, if you, if you look at who she's citing, she's citing Thomas Mann, um, Shayla, Ernst Junger is a big one. Even Carl Schmidt, other people, she's talking about intellectuals, academics, writers. And what she's saying is that these were people who, um, you know, largely separated themselves from the people in power, the 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 steel barons and the and the Oppenheimer, or, well maybe the not Oppenheimer, but the, the 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 bourgeoisie, and they were critical of government and also of business and um and power, and they had always been critical of it, but they sort of allied with the mob and said, let's tear it apart, let's enjoy tearing it down, and uh, and that was and that was where their temporary alliance. Uh, was formed and then it ended. Do you think um, that's too gross a generalization about <laughs> all of those writers? I mean, what if you want to have a voice of criticism and critique, where's it going to come from? Um, well, I mean, it's one thing to criticize bourgeois capitalism, right? It's another thing to uh, celebrate uh, the destruction of courts, institutions, administrative agencies that allow that capitalism to, to emerge. You know, um, I mean, if you want an example on 339, she says, in all fairness to those among the elite, right? On the other hand, who at one time or another have let themselves be seduced by totalitarian movements and who sometimes because of their intellectual abilities are even accused of having inspired totalitarianism. It must be stated that what these desperate men of the 20th century did or did not do had no influence on totalitarianism whatsoever, although it did play some part in earlier successful attempts of the movements to force the outside world to take their doctrines seriously. Wherever totalitarian movements seized power, this whole group of sympathizers was shaken off even before the regimes proceeded toward their greatest crimes. So she clearly has Martin Heidegger, amongst others, in mind there, right? You know, Heidegger helped make, helped Nazism get taken seriously. And then as soon as Nazis came to power, he was shaken off and kicked out and, and isolated by the Nazis for the rest of the war. And so, you know, she's saying you can't blame these intellectuals completely. They're not the ones who did the brutal deeds, but their willingness to uh, embrace destruction and and a kind of radical extremism did help make the attack on the establishment uh, easier and open the door to a kind of totalitarianism that they didn't support and that came after them. I would just say that's true, obviously, of some, but I doubt that it's true even of the majority. Well, I'm not saying, I don't think she would say it's the truth of the majority. It's, it was enough that they they achieved it. Listen, thank you all. This has been a great conversation. I hope you enjoy reading Hannah Arendt. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to follow the podcast and leave us a like in case you enjoyed this week's chapter reading. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz and we hope you'll be back next time. If you'd like to participate in discussions, please become a member of the Hannah Arendt Center and join our weekly reading groups. 
We'd love to see you every Friday. For more info, visit our website at hac.bard.edu and follow us on Twitter at Center or Instagram at Center at Bard. My name is Jana Mada and I look forward to welcoming you back next week for another episode of Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. Goodbye and auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>